Again, going back to how those different systems connect to build a culture where people themselves uh, send a message that is not allowed, not a policy or you know a statement in the handbook, but that this is embodied. You may have your personal opinions, but in this capsule, we are this, and this is what we embody. And that creates a space where it has no room for hatred. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. Today, I'm very, very excited to have Lauren Rosario Maldonado on my show. Uh, Lauren is a global HR expert with over 25 years of experience in redefining corporate cultures around the world. Her focus lies in leadership optimization and cultural intelligence. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to hear your story. Uh, your new book just launched, I heard, so I want to talk all about that. Um, you've done all kinds of great stuff within the HR people space that I really want to get into. So Lauren, let's start with your story, because I'm sure you didn't just get out of bed and uh, and write a book, right? So tell, tell me a little bit about uh, the journey up to this point. Wow. No, I did not just get up out of bed to do that. I came across cultural intelligence as part of my meet, uh, master's thesis program five years ago. And as you mentioned, you know, up until that point, I was tasked with leading global HR teams for a, I was working for a a conglomerate, a multinational uh, based out of Mexico. And um, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I'm well-bred, I'm a learned individual. And so uh, taking this class, which was uh, multicultural counseling, um, I felt like, you know, it was, it was a nice to have, but not necessarily expecting to learn everything I did. And as part of that class and my research, I came across cultural intelligence. And it was the first time that I was able to articulate all of the different experiences I had with foreign cultures, Latin America, Europe, Asia, in a way that made sense to me. When I started my career, I was focused heavily on emotional intelligence and leadership skills surrounding uh, emotional intelligence. But when I started working with global teams, I learned that that was not necessarily enough. And a lot of the emotional intelligence uh, perspectives that I was attempting to utilize fell short when building connections, deeper connections with not only people that I led, but peers and, and so forth and so on. And so that resulted in an extreme, very extreme identity crisis because it was the first time that I realized I was culturally agnostic. And while I felt before that point that that was a positive, it was a negative in many ways because not understanding enough about my own culture and my cultural values was creating biases that I never knew existed. And so as a result of that powerful thesis and my professor encouraging me to do my dissertation and my my doctorate work in in this field, um, the more I shared my story, the more people pushed me to write this story because it's something we don't talk about enough. We talk about the biases, but we don't talk necessarily enough about 
what leads, what contributes to those biases. Wow, that's that's a it's a big big book we're about to open, right? Um, especially in a time where you and I spoke a couple weeks ago, and I think it is such a good timing for for your book. It's such a good timing for us to have this conversation because more teams, you know, globalization is a real thing. I've never seen so many companies have so many different teams all over the globe. I told you, we're we're not a large company, yet we have people in four different continents. Um, yes. I mean, that's nuts, right? And I don't, even, I don't even know how many languages are spoken in and out of our offices. And understanding the different cultures is incredibly important for efficiency, for um, staying culturally... Um, you know, sensitive and all that stuff. Let, let, t tell me in your vast experience, how have you seen leadership styles evolve in this, this new global kind of landscape where everybody's all over the world communicating daily? I feel like it's evolving more towards the human side. There was a period of time where leadership became very technical, very functional. And so we are going back to that human factor behind leadership because to your point, we are a global society regardless of where in the world we are. Regardless whether your organization has a global presence, your vendors are global, your customers are global. And so you may have, which I think it's impossible these days, but you may have a homogenous uh, culture and employee base, but the world in which they operate is global. And this, again, is very timely because the world is turning to AI for automation and for, uh, you know, efficiency. And so that's becoming less human. So I think the only thing left for us as human leaders, especially is to, to connect on a very, very deep level. It's the only thing that I think cannot be replaced by uh, AI is that our ability to understand each other at a very, very deep level. And I think it sounds like that's where this is all headed, right? Um, why did you decide to tackle this? I mean, you mentioned you didn't quite understand your own world and all that and you want, but what made you think that there was an actual problem beyond Lauren, right? Because that problem you could have solved just internally. Why did you decide to tackle this very large world of uh, neurodivergence and, and, and becoming the change, which is the title of your book? Tell me a little bit more about that. That's a great question because at first, you know, there was a lot of shame surrounding my story, right? How can I not know this? Oh my gosh, I can't believe this, blah, blah. But, uh, but the more I told people about this story, it started with very close family and friends, um, expanding that story to people that I had just met or, or whether at work or in, you know, in my outer professional sphere with, with organizations I belong to, everyone said the same thing. Wow, I never thought of it that way. Every single person said those words to me, which led me to think, hmm, if this is how they feel, how does the rest of the world feel? If this is how I'm feeling, what about my counterpart in London? What are they feeling? or in Asia, or in the Dominican Republic, are they experiencing this? You know, my family, if, if they're feeling this, how are their employers feeling? And because it's not talked about enough, or because it's, it's embedded in more nuanced discussions like DEI, it's, it misses the, um, it, it's kind of diluted, right? But 
I agree. There's that quote that says, and I I apologize because I cannot remember uh, who said it. It's you. In order to understand, you need to be understood, and in order to be understood, you need to understand. So that's really what propelled me to amplify my voice. And believe me, that took a lot of convincing, right? But to your point, there's a lot of things happening that have been brewing way before this year. And if we take pause and seek to understand, that can change the course of so many things, not change the individual but change the course because at the end of the day, we don't want to change anyone, but we do want to understand. Tell me a little bit about what cultural intelligence is to you. Uh, and I, I guess I would say, what's the, the uh, opposite of cultural intelligence? Great, great question. I would say to me, cultural intelligence, you know, the academic term is capabilities that help you work and understand and adapt uh, with others who are different from you in a, a much more effectively, right? It's a framework. It has four capabilities with uh, different dimensions, sub-dimensions that provide you with a toolkit on how to navigate those differences. What is the opposite of that is, wow, disconnect. I mean, you know, it, it's telling you how you can understand someone who is different from you so that you can collaborate, communicate, uh, you know, coexist much more effectively. And so the opposite of that would be disconnect. Nice. Um, how similar is this to emotional intelligence? And wh what is the key difference? That is the million dollar question that we are always asked because emotional intelligence is, is more of that trending topic, right? Whereas cultural intelligence is now kind of emerging it's only been around, uh, the science behind it has only been around about 15-ish years, um, as opposed to emotional intelligence, who's been, you know, in, in mainstream, if you will, for much longer. And the difference is, you know, they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. If anything, you need both, because emotional intelligent, intelligence is about self-management, self-regulating, self-awareness, right? And, and adapting yourself. Where cultural intelligence comes in is, you know, emotional intelligence stops short at the homogenous environment, right? Your, your emotional intelligence, even if you are self-aware, is influenced by your own cultural values. And when you are interacting with others, it's important to understand their cultural values and how their emotional intelligence is influenced, if you will. So they go hand in hand. Uh, I would say cultural intelligence takes things a step further. Got it. What, what are some of the challenges, I guess, leaders are currently facing in, in workplace culture and how can they overcome them using this cultural intelligence framework? Great question. I would say the number one challenge they're facing is how to preserve the human side behind their leadership skills while driving business results, right? While driving productivity. And where cultural intelligence helps is it enhances that employee value proposition, right? You're, you're bringing um, 
engagement and empowerment through understanding, through collaboration and connection, which is what humanity is all about. It sounds simple. We all know as leaders, it is not, particularly in this ridiculously fast-paced world we live in. But what it helps you do is to take a step back and really assess yourself as a leader, understand yourself, your values, and how you prefer to show up in the world, and then take it a step further by helping your employees do the same, right? So we know there's a lot more challenges, uh, you know, technological disruption, uh, business supply chain issues, also political disruption across the globe, you name it. But cultural intelligence is about, you know, coming back to a place of understanding and using that understanding to take collective action. Um, So if I'm I'm listening in and I'm driving and I want to immediately come up with three things that I want to do to become more culturally intelligent, intelligent, tell me, what do they look like? What's step one, step two, step three? Understand yourself, your own cultural values, how you prefer to do things. How is that tied to your history, your upbringing, so forth and so on? Second, I would say, you know, use that understanding to then uh, connect with your employees, right? How is that influencing the way you lead your employees? And then third, Use these two, combine these two to take action and continue to adapt your behaviors according to what you're learning. The more you learn about yourself, the more you can show up for your employees in a way that is not disruptive. It becomes natural because it's coming from a place of knowledge and understanding. So doing that will then motivate you to take more action and more action and more action. It's not an overnight. It's a journey. Right. Um, But the more you do that, the more you will incorporate, even if it's just baby step moves to to connect better with your employees. One of the Lauren, one of the things we do in our meetings that seems so trivial and so small and and kind of silly almost is we ask uh, it's called segue. And we every meeting starts with one personal good news and one, uh, you know, business good news. You would ask why the personal one. Uh, it's it's a business meeting. Who cares? And and you understand so much from people's world by just hearing their good yeah. news, right? They'll talk about their spouse. They'll talk about their kids. They'll talk about their personal gym, something, right? And you start understanding them. And and when they can't come up with good news, you know they're struggling. Uh, it's a great opportunity to dive in and say, hey, you you know w- what's up? You seem stressed. You seem like you didn't have a lot of good personal good news. What's going on? Um, I never really understood why that was important. Another topic is years ago, I was part of a think tank called Vistage, and our chair would always try to connect on a human level. And we would say, Steve, stop, right? Like, I'm here to drive business, to learn from, from, from everybody and, and talk business. Don't, don't get my family involved. But what I realized years later is until we understood each other on such a personal level, we literally cared on a personal level about each other, could we give great advice? Yeah. I mean, it hit years later. Why do you care? Why are you so 
curious about our personal lives and all that. Let's just talk business. Let's bring in speakers. Let's let's look at our PLs. And all that is important. But again, until there's a deep understanding of each other's pain points, real pain points on lives and and on our actual whys, we really didn't give great advice. We gave advice because we sounded smart or we had something to add, wanted to hear ourselves think or talk, but really to, to, until we understood each other at a deep level, it wasn't the same. So That is fantastic. That's a great example. I talk a little bit about that in my book because that was me. You know, I kept thinking, why do they want to know so much about my personal life? I, I don't want to talk about it. I'm hyper private, don't want to talk about it. But understanding that there are certain cultures that, you know, connect and, and build trust based on that personal connection. So uh, what you're saying completely resonates with me. Of course. That's awesome. Let's talk about uh, the book. No more teasing. Let's talk about the book and, and why, what you're covering and, and why you chose to cover those awesome things. I chose to cover those awesome things because they are often not talked about. Uh, these were the highlights. There are 10 cultural value dimensions, for example. But I highlighted the ones that really impacted me the most, the ones that the more I spoke to people were, you know, drove that aha factor, uh, you know, such as managing time, right? Or communicating, building trust. These were things that, that really, you know, we talk about communication, in leadership, but we don't really talk about what drives those communication patterns and preferences. And so the book highlights, you know, those nuances, and then it really gives readers just practical takeaways on how to improve, right? There's a roadmap, a, a playbook included where anyone, whether they are a named leader, an executive, to that individual contributor that is looking to grow, on how to practically apply culturally intelligent um, perspectives in day-to-day life. You, uh, Lauren, I'm, I'm visual, and, and many of my uh, viewers, I'm sure, are. Do you have the book in front of you? You of can show course. us. Of course, yes. And is this available on? Is this available on like the Amazon store, Libby, or any of those? Amazon nice. uh, and Kobo, K O B O. Great. Mm-hmm. Very good. Mm-hmm. We'll pick it up. Uh, we have a, 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 a corporate account here. Everybody gets to pick books that they like and, and all that stuff. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> of all the years, uh, can you share some insights into leadership development programs you've designed and their impact on corporate growth um, and, and why you, did, you made those changes? It depended on the, on the organization I was with. I've been in various industries from you know, engineering to interior design, digital media, publishing, um, and telecommunications. How can I forget? It's one of the biggest ones. I would say every adaptation that was made was based on the business needs at the moment. Uh, I remember in publishing when we were building the university at the time, we were, we were very focused on presence, right? Uh, and, helping we had 50 states at the time and so we needed to make sure that people felt a place where they could you know connect with others physically but the leadership uh, programs that we developed there were more oriented towards selling leadership i think later later on in my years i focused a lot more on that human and uh 
game-changing leader, as I would call it, which is that leader is well-rounded. It's not just talking about emotional intelligence, right? It's talking about really the psychology behind leading people, uh, beyond communication, more so on the topic of how to team build through, you know, through uh, that visionary language, right? And an interactive language as opposed to boilerplate cookie cutter type uh, tools out there that just focus on a set of skills. But every single time, I remember at the Lista, which is a call center, we were heavily focused on engagement and motivation, right? And team building techniques because it is not only fast paced, but it is a very relational a business and function, right? Mainly focused on the agent, how how to enhance the the employee value proposition from the lens of that agent. And so there was a lot of customer service embedded in the leadership development, as well as you know self self awareness, self management, motivating others, building trust. That's that was a big big one. And so that's how. Each program would take the DNA of the organization, right? Because we can't really create leadership programs without understanding the business and what are the the levers that are unique to that business in driving business results. Lauren, um, you've obviously heard of the great resignation, right? That happened right around the COVID timeframe. When, when companies went fully remote, uh, culture, there was a lot of culture loss, I feel like. And companies are reacting to that um, by asking people to come back into the office two, three, four times a week, some five. Um, Those companies that still have remote staff, uh, how do you recommend, you know, they keep culture alive? Because I feel like one of the reasons that so many people were resigning so quickly uh, was because work was no longer a place. It was no longer a place where you built relationships and there was no stickiness, right? If you don't know your boss and you haven't built a relationship and you're just an email address and maybe a a Zoom face from time to time, why do you care? You know, you resign when you get a 5% Mm -hmm. raise somewhere else. I mean, that became the norm or more flexibility or whatever it was. I feel like so much culture was lost. You know, what are some recommendations you have for for companies that still have a remote staff, whether it's a secondary uh, staff meeting, they have their corporate office and then have remote employees or it's a remote first company? Like what are some things you can do in a remote scenario to build culture and and stickiness and, and, and team collaboration and all that? Yeah, absolutely. I would say culture has taken the big uh, the biggest hit by becoming, you know, 100% remote. And if you didn't have that stickiness to your point, you were greatly influenced by being, you know, becoming completely virtual. I would say go back to the basics, go back to that culture. Really assess that employee value proposition on what it is that you you are looking to to hold true as your culture, as your DNA. We like to use culture as a blanket statement, and it is certainly not, right? It's not a magic wand. There are different, there are all these different components that build a culture. One of them is leadership. One of them is psychological safety and and, uh, trust in the organization, right? The employees trust 
in leadership. So I would go back to that basic and understand what is that culture that defines you? Where are your, are your processes aligned with the culture you want to see? But are your leaders equipped to uh, galvanize and cultivate that culture, right? Sometimes there's a disconnect between what the company says the culture is and what the culture really is. And so assessing that early on is very important because employees can definitely feel that gap. If you're an organization that promotes, um, you know, work-life balance, let's say, or having resources for all, but employees are having to, you know, work with very little resources and working around the clock, you know, is that really sending the message that you do value work-life balance? And so making sure that your, your words match your actions as an organization. But that culture does not have to be articulated. It is embodied. And so in a virtual environment, we're talking here. We only met a week ago and our connection was almost instant, right? Because we were talking to each other and we connected on certain points. And that's what employees are looking for. Whether you're digital or or in person, that's what they're looking for. It's harder when you're digital because you can't really uh, send, you know, an emoji is not the same as giving someone a hug or, or a handshake, right? So it takes, it takes extra steps from leadership to cultivate that culture, but it's not impossible. That's great. I agree. I agree. We've done it. At first, it was extremely difficult extremely difficult uh, and we always felt like our teams that were were remote w missed out on our culture uh, and we had to mm -hmm. take very specific steps to include them part of the culture small things like when we had off-site uh, events here or parties then those teams would have to do the same but together in some area where we would fly them all in so they can bond and do dinner just like we would here um, I think that was huge. Um, and even if That's they were fantastic. a team, right? I mean, it's small things. Like we would say, yes. we would say everybody in, in Armenia, India, Colombia, Brazil, you guys have to go and do an event together. Now, the biggest challenge was when it was a team of one. If it was a team of one, which we had very few, then it was, hey, you and your spouse go and have a team lunch. We had to come up with very creative things. I'll, I'll give the uh, all the credit to, to, to my management team. That was their idea, but really got the teams feeling like they were part of something. Uh, versus before, it was the LA headquarters show and everybody else was secondary, which was very, very challenging to, to change, mm -hmm. but we did it. Um, tech is evolving so quickly and there's innovations daily. Um, what are some of the innovations you see in uh, HR that's sh reshaping the future of work, particularly in tech companies? Whoa, uh, definitely AI. I know it's a hot topic, but it has definitely disrupted the way that not only HR does work, but how they view innovation at work. Mm -hmm. um, because especially in the tech world, we get so excited about new technology and how we can apply it to work. And a AI has been one of those that we, you know, we were that, that employees 
were kind of slow rolled, if you will, from utilizing it completely because there are a lot of challenges to it, right? There are, you know, copyright infringement issues. There are, you know, other issues that can put the company at risk. And so explaining that to employees from an engagement standpoint, yes, you know, it's definitely, it can be demoralizing for that employee. But I would, you know, I would say that AI is fueling other technology that if it has not fully already, will continue disrupting the way that HR approaches talent management. Um, Talent acquisition is one of them, for example. A lot of companies have the great idea of utilizing algorithms and AI technology to, you know, to select candidates, for example, which is a very dangerous thing to do when it's not utilized ethically because you can unintentionally uh, discriminate or prejudice against groups that you don't intend to, but the tool you have selected does so inadvertently. So that's a cause for for disaster. Uh, Plagiarism is another one, right? Making sure that the organization is using these tools to, to produce quality and original work. Um, And so AI, I feel, is at the root of all of these different technologies that are coming down the pike. You know, the other one is this fear around AI taking over jobs. And time and time again, you know, I've seen it where I've been tasked to reduce staff and I've had to push for upskilling and reskilling existing staff the most possible in order to you know to preserve the the intellectual property of the organization if you will but this is a way where you know hr has to balance between being innovative while still being human centered right because the intention at the end of the day is not to have ai employees it's to use humans for what humans do best, that is connect, engage, motivate, and everything that has to do with the person, with the whole person at work. Is work being disrupted? Absolutely. But it's our responsibility, not only as HR, because we all know HR is, is one component of the organizational leadership, but it's leadership's responsibility to make sure that the teams are equipped to be upskilled. If the person hasn't been trained or developed in a year, that's already too long of time, right? How do we educate our employees in a way that they can not just adapt to new technologies, but thrive and innovate in spite of new technology? Absolutely. This is great, Lauren. I actually spoke on, uh, on this topic last week um, in a university, but the whole concept is if, if you are, if you're not actively retraining your folks, teaching them AI, how to use AI, you're putting them in a, in a category of dinosaur within two, three years, and they will be replaced, right? Uh, the way we're looking at AI here at HireCloud, we are actually uh, injecting AI into our, into our company, but it's solely to make people more efficient and to mm-hmm. make them do the things that they love most, right? Which is thinking and problem solving, not filling out Excel spreadsheets, right? Correct. Uh, or, or doing data entry 
That's what I want to replace. I want to replace very, very kind of boring um, tasks that a machine should and can do um, without any bias, without honestly less mistakes than humans uh, and allow these, these folks to really use their God given gifts, which is their, their emotional intelligence and their people skills and their problem solving skills. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and That's it's great. great that you mentioned that because, you know, we we always think about, I'm dating myself, but I used this example the other day. Do you remember Y2K? Yes. I mean, we thought the world was dead, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone was mm-hmm. preparing for Armageddon and da, da, da. <laughs> and everyone prepared. Yeah. We prepared. And here we are with another innovative and disruptive technology, right? And it was frightening and people were scared, but if you prepared and you understood that well, you, you, you know, pummel through it. And also I see AI and any uh, emerging technology, immersive technology is another one, right? We're soon going to be doing this through immersive technology rather than, than Riverside or Zoom. And I think that's fantastic. How we grow and adapt to it is where our, our human innovation comes into play. Right. This is how we bring these this technology to life. You can't do that without humans. I agree. Um, there's the there's the fluff component of diversity and inclusion, right? Which is to check boxes so you look great and get you know all this stuff that some of the bigger companies are doing. But what are some the key elements in actually building a truly inclusive culture that people can be proud of and it was created organically and and uh, the way it should be? You're, you're bringing uh, music to my ears because, you know, just like, they, just like DEI could be a checkbox, the approach needs to be no stone unturned. There are many different systems uh, within the organization that need to be revised in order for you to be inclusive. You can't just put out that statement, put it in your handbook, create a little policy mm-hmm. and everyone acknowledges it and you're done. You can't just uh, recruit, you know, a diverse set, not just having women in technology, which you and I spoke is is a challenge, but how are those women being empowered in the workplace? How are the systems in place there to support not just women, but members of all the other different dimensions of diversity? See, um, you know, whether work with balance programs or anything that supports women. And I will go as far as to say, it's not that women are at a disadvantage, is that there there are still um, outdated perspectives on what women bring to the table. And a lot of that is driven by culture and cultural values. So how are these processes helping support the not only integration of diverse populations, but that they thrive, that they have the resources they need to elevate their voice, that their voice is heard, and that they feel seen and engaged. If they are in that meeting in a room full of men or um, or non-binary or neurodiverse individuals, is everyone in that room being heard and seen? Are the resources available to everyone in that room adapted to help each person feel like they are engaged and participating effectively. That's great. Lauren, there's um, 
kind of a controversial topic, but I might as well pick your brain. Um, how do we eliminate this this almost um, new, uh, I don't want to say bias, but new hatred towards a, a certain group, right? You hear a lot of cr critique of uh, white men, old white men as being like the, the pariah mm. group, right? Uh, it's, it's, you start seeing this more and more often. How do we get rid of that that uh, kind of hatred I'm almost seeing forming, right, uh, in result of what's happened over the last few years? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say, do you ever get rid of it? I think that you could mitigate it, right? You know, human behavior is a funny thing. You can certainly provide the tools they need to understand, that's one. Um, but this is where your systems almost create like a, like a stopgap or a fail-safe um, mechanism to prevent this from escalating or creating a toxic environment, right? And it starts with understanding, moving towards making sure, again, that those systems in place in the context of the workplace, uh, of course, um, making sure that the systems in place don't don't enable that sentiment, right? That that leaders are equipped with the tools they need to to mitigate that, in spite of their personal opinion. Is again going back to how those different systems connect to build a culture where people themselves. Uh, send the message that it's not allowed, not a policy or you know a statement in the handbook, but that this is embodied. You may have your personal opinions, but in this capsule, we are this, and this is what we embody, and that creates a space where it has no room for hatred. Love that. You know, another one, another topic that I've spoken about is I didn't realize ageism as a young, as a young person, I, I didn't realize ageism was such a thing as well. And so I had to start educating because people would talk about it very, very openly. Like, yeah, I don't want anyone, you know, past their forties. And I would say, why? Ah, why? you know how it is. I'm like, I don't know how it is. Can you, can you explain? And you realize how much nonsense there was. And so it, I had such a great example. I would say, listen, can I be honest with you? Some of the folks that I have in their 50s and 60s will run circles around you. Uh, be very careful. They're mentally, physically, emotionally healthier than you. Physically, including physically. I have 65-year-olds here that work for us that, that run three miles a day that uh, are healthier. They miss less work. They're more focused. They're more, more growth-oriented because people are fear, well, they're going to retire in a year or two. I don't want to invest. I don't know who you're talking to, but none of the folks in the 60s in our companies have any interest in retiring anytime soon. Even if they do, they, they will go until the last minute until they can't anymore. So um, that's another big one that I noticed. It was just like under almost accepted uh, biased um, that uh, these folks are not going to be capable long-term and it was nonsense. Yes, I agree. It is nonsense. You know, we a 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old today is not 60-year-old from, you know, three years ago, not even five years ago. These are people who, to your point, are very, very capable, if not more capable, we need this group in the workplace because desperately, you know, the younger employees, they are fantastic, fast paced, they're innovative, mm -hmm. they you know, embrace technology and da da da. 
but they missed out, but particularly um, the younger generation that has just come out of college, uh, especially within the COVID period, the pandemic yeah. period, that missed out on the social aspects yes. of the workplace, right? They had to graduate from school virtually. And so, you know, these generations, they learn from each other. Um, there are a couple people I interviewed for my book that have this dynamic, you know, whereas uh, the person, you know, from the older generation was so interested in technology and interested in learning from the younger generation was just a little bit more risk averse because mm -hmm. of their of their history. Whereas the younger employee, you know, relied on this person for their intellect, for their knowledge of of the trajectory that technology has had, even within the last 10 years. And so here you have two polar opposites or seeming polar opposites that have connected through understanding and learned to see those differences as their superpower. Love and they used it as such, you know? So to your point, I think, um, I think that we're missing out on, on this generation Big time, big time, big time. Mm -hmm. Lucky for Hardclaw, we are not, uh, and, it, and it's Thank really gosh. nice to see. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And um, no one talks about that diversity, right? There's, there's, you know, that piece never is discussed. But um, we have a, we proudly talk about how we have folks in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties. I mean, that alone is diversity, right? I mean, because you have absolutely. different cultures, Gen Zs, Millennials, Xers, Baby Boomers, all these different folks teaching each other different things. It's extremely powerful. And it's frankly, a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor. Just even like when someone talks about an, an era and you see the blank uh, uh, stairs and you have to educate them on what Nintendo or Atari is, it's, it, it's hilarious. <laughs> well, or, imagine you know, me when machines. I mentioned Y2K, you know, they're like, what? Yeah, what the what? hell is what Y2K? You Armageddon? I'm like, well, have a seat. Yeah, have a seat. Let's, we, talk. We, let's talk. I love it. You talked about an <laughs> interesting word, neurodivergence. Educate us on what that actually means. Neurodivergence just, you know, represents the different ways that people think. And we have, it's a wide pool thanks to the societal definition of these different terms. But, you know, we, we, it's another aspect that is not seen, certainly not heard particularly, you know, for example, those with ADD uh, or those with autism, right? There are all of these different uh, neurodivergent categories because they have to be for medical reasons, um, have their, their spectrum. You may have people that fall in the earlier or later part of the spectrum and that you may work with that person and not know ever that they are you know, part of this diverse group. And so going back to that uh, culture aspect and having a culture where people feel um, seen and heard involves creating a culture where people feel comfortable talking about it. I myself, I, you know, everyone has always seen me as someone who is uh, definitely eclectic, uh, certainly creative and innovative, but no one really knew that I had ADD until just a few years ago when I, again, the learned individual uh, 
who's the head of global HR and thinking, yes, let's be inclusive of everyone. I was afraid to talk about it. So uh, creating a space where, you know, people feel seen and heard includes this group who's also falling by wayside. You mentioned ageism, but this is another group that is just now starting to, to have a voice and to articulate that loud and clear whenever they need, but there's still a fundamental fear of talking about it. Nice. Very good. Um, Nick, Nick uh, asked me to specifically ask a question that's important to him. Uh, his curiosity is around HR and how it's always been, HR is for the company, is how it's looked, right? It's not for the employees. Or from what I've seen, it leans too heavily for the people and not enough for the company. So that's interesting. That's how, how he looks at it. Why should employees trust HR staff um, who's protecting the company as their, as their number one priority? Yeah, I would say it, its number one priority is to protect the company, which is its people, right? A lot of times it's misconstrued because I have witnessed, and I, I can attest to this, HR departments that are cookie cutter and just focused on protecting not the company, the CEO, right? Or the policies or, you know, whatever law has just been enacted, People-centered HR, you know, people and culture is very different in that when you are having to uphold these laws, these policies, and blah, 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 you need to make sure you come at this from a, like a design thinking approach, right? What is that end user going to think about what you're doing and how, what do they need in order to to support this new law or policy. It's not about not enacting it. It's about making sure that you're coming at it from the lens of a human being. Um, If it's, you know, I remember COVID was an absolute nightmare because particularly in the United States, no two states would communicate, let alone communicate with the federal government. Yet we had to comply with state rules and regulations that, you know, sometimes contradicted the human side behind human resources. But our narrative, our message was exactly that. It was, it was, this is the law. This is how it applies to you. And this is how the organization supports you in complying with this law, right? So it's about the delivery, not necessarily the, uh, the policy or, or the, the law has just been passed. Unfortunately for HR, they are at the mercy of many of those laws um, that require for them to sometimes, I'll say it, become inhuman resources. But it's up to HR, human resources, to, to make sure that employees understand the reasoning, the nuance, and the implications of not complying with that law. That's awesome. This has been great, Lauren. Where can people find you? Where can they, you know, um, reach out to you, follow you, and then and, and, uh, learn more? Absolutely. You can go to my website, laurenrosario.com, or you can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I love my LinkedIn community, Lauren Rosario Maldonado. And you can learn more about me and my work. Uh, through there as well. Awesome. Lauren, thank you so much for being here and teaching us so many new concepts, especially cultural intelligence and 
and how to apply it to the workplace. Appreciate you and thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Ovidas. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you took away some valuable insights to apply in your professional journey. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss out on the next great conversation. I promise it'll be good. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could leave us a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also help others discover the podcast. Better leaders mean better working environments. Better working environments leads to happier people. Remember, a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm Avita Santablian, and this has been the Tech Leaders Playbook. Keep leading, keep learning, keep giving, and I'll see you on the next one. Until then, stay inspired, my friends.